Father, thank you for this opportunity now to just take our Bibles and be reminded and refreshed and encouraged through the teachings of the Christmas story and the reality of the coming of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that it brings to gather and sing the traditional hymns of Christmas. Father, may we worship you in spirit and in truth and in meaningful ways this Christmas, even as the world seeks to squish us into its mold. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the practical instruction. Thank you for revealing your heart and your mind to us so that we can know how to respond to you, a holy God, and we can enter into your great salvation. Please accomplish your purposes through your word. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. What a story. You believe this story? Young man engaged to young woman. Righteous man. Doing all that he was taught to do to please God. Doing all that he knew to do that was righteous in the eyes of God. In a manner of how to treat his espoused wife. His fiancée, we would say in our culture. And then one night in this dream, the angel of the Lord comes to him. Joseph, Joseph, here's the deal. Imagine, with such limited information, limited revelation, how this young man had the faith to wake up from his dream and to do what God said. Did you get the part in there where it said, why Jesus came? Well, we're so familiar with the story, aren't we? And we repeat it, and the month of December is a time when we are overwhelmed with everything from kids' programs to uh, extra services, choir practices, to our Christmas shopping. On our Sunday morning messages here this month of December, we are focusing upon the why. Why did God send Jesus? We see as we read the introductory story from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and you don't need to turn there, we see that he told Joseph the reason he was doing that. Did he get it? 
Did you get it? She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. Joseph probably knew in his mind what that name meant. It was a common name. It is the Greek form of the Old Testament name, Joshua, the Lord saves. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why God sent Jesus, to save people from their sins. And he saved sinners here this morning? It's because of this story right here. The rest of Scripture documents that that is indeed the reality of it. The Apostle Paul, apart from our Lord Jesus, the greatest theologian that wrote parts of our Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that we looked at a few weeks ago, he said this, Here is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. Listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. The angel told Joseph he's coming to save sinners. Paul reinforced it in all of his teaching. Last week in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, in verse 17, we were reminded that He did not come to condemn the world, but He came so that the world through Him might be saved. That is, saved from their sin. Well, we want to look further this week at why He came and, and answer the question further, how does this work? We looked at a story from the Old Testament to illustrate one of the great truths of how God saves us. How does God, through Jesus, born of Mary, laid in a manger, grown up, ministering, over to the cross, nailed to a cross on our behalf, buried three days later, rising again, how does that save us? We looked at an Old Testament story last week to put into context what our Lord taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, remember the snake story last week? And he said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He came, born of Mary, to be lifted up so that we could look and live. And we learned a theological word. Do you remember our word last week? Will you say it with me? Propitiation. It's an old English word. It's an old King James word, but it's a good word. Do you remember what it means? Propitiation. Remember what John 3.17 says. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him would be saved. And He did that out of John 3.16. He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. Remember how we talked about the fact last week that this word propitiation means that God in His love and His desire to save sinners needed something to happen. He needed His holiness and His justice to be satisfied so that He wasn't inconsistent with Himself. And when Jesus came, born of Mary, and went to the cross, He bore our sin and He satisfied the penalty. He satisfied the demand of a holy God to judge sin on our behalf. And that's what propitiation means. He took that and satisfied it. This morning, we want to learn another word about how this happens. How are we saved through Jesus? One way we're saved through Him is the fact that He is the propitiation for our sin. We needed Him to be born. We needed a perfect sacrifice. We needed somebody to substitute in our place so that the holiness and the justice of God that would pour out wrath on sin 
could be satisfied, and we had no solution in and of ourselves. That's why he had to come, so that his love could be poured out on us. And remember, we pointed out that propitiation does not mean that an angry God became a loving God. God is always loving, he hates sin, and he will pour out his wrath on sin, and propitiation means that wrath was satisfied by satisfying the demands of his holiness. He's always loving, but he's always just. We're going to learn a new word today. It's another church word, and it's going to further illustrate why did he have to come, and how does this work? And I want to look at another story from the Bible to illustrate it. It's not one that Jesus used in teaching about his salvation, but it's a real story that really happened that illustrates what our new word today means. Last week's word, say it with me, propitiation. This week's word is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now that's a word that everybody who's been around church very long has heard. But I wonder if you understand what reconciliation means. You see, if you don't understand what reconciliation means, you don't really understand the Christmas story. If you don't understand what reconciliation means, you probably don't have a very clear understanding of your salvation in Christ and why He came and why He ended up at the cross. The Bible story that I want to tell is a story about a runaway slave. You can open there if you want. We're not going to read it, although we could in just a few minutes read the entire story. If you find our book where we've been teaching, 1 Timothy, then you go to 2 Timothy, and then Titus, and then the little book Philemon. Perhaps the most overlooked little book in our New Testament. It's Philemon. First and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And if you want to look at it, you can. And the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this letter. And uh, last week's story was a snake story. This week's story is a runaway slave story. It's a runaway slave story. And I wanted to, to use it to illustrate what the definition of reconciliation is. Okay? So here's the deal. The Apostle Paul is in prison. And while he's in prison, evidently, and notice what he says in verse uh, 9... Uh, verse 10, he says, he says in verse 9 that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's an old man and he's now a prisoner and he's, he writes that he's in chains. And in verse 10 of Philemon, he says, I appeal to you, he's talking to Philemon, for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Now let me tell you what's happening here. <clears throat> Paul is in prison. If we read between the lines, what we suspect happened, we can't prove it, but what we suspect happened is that while Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel, one day the bars of the prison clanged open, the chains rattled, and some young man was thrown into the cell nearby Paul. He was probably beat up and battered because... He was a runaway slave. His master was Philemon. It just so happened in the providence of God that where Paul was in prison and Onesimus, no doubt, was thrown right in the cell with him, that Paul, in a previous missionary journey at Ephesus, had led, the, the, the implication is that he had led Philemon to Christ. Philemon was evidently a wealthy man. He had bond servants and servants of his household who were obligated to serve him. They were slaves. It was practiced in this culture. 
And here's this young Onesimus thrown into prison. He had done something that slaves paid dearly for, and that was usually the death penalty. He had run away. Perhaps he had stolen from Philemon, and he had run away to escape the wrath of his master, Philemon. He was captured, and he was thrown into prison, and there's the Apostle Paul, and by looking at the text, he now calls him his son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. I take it that they got to talking. And the Apostle Paul said, uh, Son, what's your name? My name's Onesimus. Where are you from? From over by Ephesus. Oh, I know some people in Ephesus, Paul would say. I know some people in Ephesus. Do you know a man named Philemon? The church there meets in his home. Do you know? Oh, I know Philemon. Uh, as a matter of fact, sir, the reason I'm in prison is because I escaped. I ran. I mistreated my master. I ran. I'm in big trouble. And in the course of the conversation and along the way, we don't know how long they were together. Evidently, Paul bore witness of forgiveness that is in Christ, of new life in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we memorized a few weeks ago, that all things become new in Christ, and Onesimus responded to the message of the gospel and became born again to the point that Paul got really excited about this young man. And so Paul sits down and he writes a letter, and it's our New Testament little letter, one-page letter in our New Testament called Philemon. Dear Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. He is now my dear son in the faith. He used to not even be worth anything to you. It's figure of speech that he's talking about. You used to plow your fields and you used to grind your corn and you used to feed your dog and he used to mow your lawn. But that was worthless compared to now. He's your brother in Christ. Later in the book, he's even going to imply emancipation. Clearly, spiritually, he's been emancipated. He's going to say, you might even consider just changing his whole way of living. But there's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is, Onesimus has broken the law, Onesimus has violated his master, and Onesimus has run away. There is division between Onesimus and Philemon. Now let your eyes turn down over to verse 17. He has said, he has appealed to him earlier in the book that I want you to do this as a favor to me. I don't want to have to use my spiritual authority and say you must forgive this guy, but please do this. Verse 16, no longer treat him as a slave. Treat him better than a slave. Bring him back in, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. You see, when you're in Christ, all these relationships change. And then verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. I mean, they're in jail, and Onesimus is going to get out, and he's writing a letter to send back with him to Philemon. He said, now, I want this guy, instead of whipping him, instead of lashing him to a post and whipping the fire out of him with canes or with whips, I want you to think of him, this servant boy, as the Apostle Paul coming into your home. And furthermore, here's what I want you to do. Verse 18, if he has done you wrong, any wrong or owes you anything, and probably the Apostle Paul knows that he does, and he's stolen money from him or something, do this. Charge it to me. Write up a bill to the Apostle Paul and write up that Onesimus is paid in full. And when, the, when I get out, I will pay the bill. 
I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, and I will pay it back. Whoa! Did Onesimus end up in the right prison cell or what? Huh? Now, this is what this is a picture of, and it is really great to see that the Apostle Paul, in anticipation to answered prayer... Do you anticipate God answering prayer? He said, in anticipation for your prayers and my prayers, Philemon, prepare your guest room, because I'm going to get out of this place. Prepare your guest room, I'm coming. It's a great little story. Slave boy offends his master runs away from his master, we now have division, don't we? We now have a broken relationship. We now have an obligation by the one who wronged his master. They are now no longer in fellowship. They are no longer able to work together. They have parted ways. They are separated. And they need to be, say the word with me, reconciled. Two parties that have been separated running away, at least the one party, running far from the other, turning his back, turning away. He needs something to happen so that they can turn and face each other. They are no longer at war. They are no longer in disagreement. They are no longer at odds. And they can come together and they can be reconciled. Isn't that a great picture? That's a great picture. How does this work for us before a holy God. Will you turn with me to Romans chapter 5 for our text now today? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and I want from Romans 5 and a couple other verses to share with us this morning three keys, three keys to understanding reconciliation. Three keys to understanding reconciliation. Okay, now keep in mind that what we're doing this Christmas season is we're trying to just understand our salvation in Christ because He came to do what? He came to be born of Mary to save His people from their sins. How does He do it? Well, we've already learned about propitiation. Now today, reconciliation. Three keys about reconciliation. Ultimately, what you need to see when you see the manger is in the background looming, you need to see what? You need to see the cross. Because this was the entry point. Christ, in all of his humility, setting aside the function of his deity at certain levels. All God, all man, little baby, wrapped in a diaper, held in his mommy's arms, growing up in all the normalcy of humanity, yet never sinning, being the perfect, ultimate, sacrificial lamb to do what? To go to the cross, to fulfill the law, to fulfill all the feasts, to fulfill all the sacrifices, to fulfill all of the debt that we have before a holy God and do it for us. He did it for us when we didn't deserve it. Now look at the text. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. You see, at just the right time. Galatians 4.4 says at just the right time as well. God sent His Son to be born of Mary. At just the right time, that's a reference to His entering humanity, at just the right time, okay, so it was overseen and dictated by God, when we were still powerless, unable to help ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, listen to this, verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. 
All right, it's a little bit like you got to die or there's a situation where tractor trailer's screaming down the street and there you are and you're going to get hit and I might rush out and push you out of the way if I really, really like you. Or if you're like my little daughter or my wife or someone that I think is really valuable and I, I will do that for you. Once in a while, somebody will die in the right situation for somebody else. But, look what he says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't do it because we deserved it. Since we have now been justified by His blood, we'll talk about that in a second, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, verse 10, when we were God's enemies, and we were, here's our word, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having, here's our word again, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We're not going to talk too much about this word again, so let's just look at it right now. The idea is, Paul says, that if when we were worthless and lost and sinful and helpless, that we were reconciled unto God, now that we're born again, don't you think that this work of reconciliation is going to continue and God has all the more to give you? in your Christian walk. If when you were worthless and a sinner, now if you're in Christ, it continues to work in you. Not only this, verse 11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, here's our word again, reconciliation. Wouldn't you think that's the key word of our little passage? Three times, reconciliation. Three keys to understanding reconciliation and why God sent Jesus, that is, to save sinners. How does it work? What are the mechanics? What's going on? The first thing we have to know about to understand reconciliation is, number one, we need to understand man's alienation. We need to understand man's alienation. Look what it says in verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless. The word powerless means feeble, feeble. It means absolutely helpless. Okay? While we were powerless, and then he also says he died for the... We were still ungodly. So not only were we helpless, but we were godless. While we were helpless and while we were godless, which amounts to the fact that we were alienated from a holy God. When did that happen? Let's think back in history. Let's go right to the beginning of our Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. And who does he make? The first man, his name is? And he makes a wife for her because he's incomplete. And her name is? And they live in the garden, don't they? What a great thing. And the reference there in Genesis chapter 2 is that in the cool of the evening, God himself would come and walk with them in the garden. How great is that? I mean, it's beyond our imagination. The joy and the fellowship and the wholeness and the completeness of the relationship between a man and his wife and the relationship between a man and his wife and their God, their creator, and the joy of living in peace without sin, it was utopian. But what happened? Don't eat of the fruit. Eve eats of the fruit. She what? She disobeyed. She disobeyed. And so man did what? Man violated the standard of a holy God. He creates a whole situation whereby, and by the way, as in Adam, all die and all sin. It's as though we were in Adam when it happened. In other words, if you were there, he'd have done the same thing. 
Because I think there's people that think, I would have never done that, man. I'd have built a fence around that tree and I'd have never done it. Nope, Adam is just like us. And we do it all the time, don't we? Wet paint, don't touch. (laughs) Sure enough. Sure enough. There it is. And so now, from that moment on, Man is in a position of sinfulness before a holy God. He has violated his standards. He is alienated. Alienated. He is separated. And it's one of the most pitiful scenes in all the Bible, even though there's no ink given to it. And it is when God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. Imagine what it must have been like to leave the parameters of this area that was evidently specially prepared, evidently thousands of square miles, literally. And, And Adam and Eve, in their shame, their heads down, these makeshift clothes, still with evidently some blood and scum from the animals that were killed to clothe them, because now they're naked and now they know they're unfit to stand before a holy God and fellowship has been broken and violated. And he says, get out of my garden and go. And they go and they're separated. They're alienated. And man stays in this position. And in that position, and as the earth is populated, and we have story after story after story, that it is only the grace of God that in man's alienation and in his helpless state and in his drive to live out the flesh and in his sinfulness that the sins of the earth by Genesis chapter 6 become a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. And if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God to reach down and raise up Noah and say, build a boat and I'm going to give you an island of hope and safety. And he leaves the door open and people can come in if they want to, but they never want to go to God. They're separated. They're alienated. But God is the initiator and God is reaching out. And the whole story of the Bible is God reconciling the broken relationship in the garden. And ultimately, the story doesn't end until you get to the cross. And so He sends His own Son. When? In our alienation and in our separation, we are helpless, we are godless. And He says... It was just at the right time, even though we were powerless, helpless, feeble, we had nothing to do with it. You could not save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Don't try. It's what the religions of the world are built upon. Do you understand that? The great religions of the world, and I use the word great with quotes around them, because they're horrible. They convince people that they can do something counting beads, saying prayer to somebody behind a curtain, walking on their knees on stones. I watched video the other day of men in the Philippines who literally crucified themselves as people would whip them. Doing what? Somehow to appease the wrath of a holy God so that they could be, our word is, reconciled. Relationship that was broken. Two warring parties. Two parties that were divided could turn and face one another again. And the religions of the world are designed to convince people that they somehow can satisfy this wrath of a holy God. And you have to get to a place where you realize that never happens. There's no good thing in me. And my heart is is sick and sinful. It is desperately wicked at best. And in that state of alienation, God says, 
I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. Wow, what's that all about? It's about his love. That is a perfect love that cannot be denied. And so the first thing you have to understand about reconciliation is that man is completely alienated and outside of a relationship with God. He is dead in his trespasses and his sins. The word of God is filled with teaching about this. The book of Ephesians, Paul makes it totally clear. We're helpless and we're dead and we don't seek after righteousness on our own. We're alienated, we're helpless. The second thing you need to understand about reconciliation is what I've already alluded to, and it's in verse 8. But in this mess, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second thing you need to know about reconciliation, apart, first of all, man's alienation. The second thing is God's demonstration. God's demonstration. What is this? That God showed us how much He loved us. This is a reflection back up on verse 7 that we already alluded to. Sometimes, in the right situation, for a real good person, somebody might die. But God demonstrates His love for us that in this, that while we were worthless, helpless, not worth dying for, it's like people that you know, people that you've seen, people that you've read about, people that are in your life right now, that you have to admit that if they died, you would say, the world's a better place. And think about a holy God who knows everything about everybody in the whole planet. And he could have said, the world would be a better place if you were all just dead. And he said, instead of you dying, I will send my son to die for you. That's the demonstration of his love. It's an undeserving love. It's it's a love that is beyond comprehension, isn't it? So much God loves us. That's why John 3.16 is such a great verse. It's not by mistake that everybody knows John 3.16. It's kind of like the whole Bible packaged up in one verse. For God so loved the world of lost, alienated, worthless sinners that he gave, demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would be born, that whosoever believeth in him, and the Bible uses that word believe over and over, especially in in John's writings. If you believe in him, you'll be saved. And so the first thing about reconciliation you need to understand is man's alienation. The second thing is God's demonstration that even though we ran from him and even though he's Philemon and probably didn't do anything wrong and we're Onesimus, we're running away, he's going to demonstrate his love. The third and final thing that we want to see is the linchpin of the thing, and that is Christ's participation. Christ's participation. So now, let's identify our parties and remind ourselves of the obvious. We have God, a holy God. We have us, alienated from God. What's going to bridge the two? Jesus. Christ's participation. He says here, since we have now been justified by his blood, because what's God going to do? How can God just look the other way? You see, It's not like a human relationship where two people who offend each other, a husband and wife, a a daughter and a mom, a son and a father, whatever, two guys at work, you say, they sinned against each other. They yelled, they broke relationship, things were bad, and then when they want to get things right, what do they do? They get together and they say, you know what, I was wrong. I was wrong, and I admit that, and I am so sorry for that, 
And the mom says to her teenage daughter, and, and I forgive you for your sassy mouth, but what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to chop off your pinky finger today because you have to pay a price for this sin. We don't do it that way, right? And so sometimes people question, well, why do you have to do that? Why did something have to be paid? It's because God is not like a human. See, we always try to humanize God, but God's not human. And God is the moral basis for all law. And so God cannot, like a human, just with words, say, okay, it doesn't matter. Because then the the morality of the law and and His holiness would be defeated. It has to be fulfilled. And so He says, so that we, we then are justified. So what do we do with all of our sinfulness of the past? How do we handle that? And how does God handle it? Well, that's where that word justified comes in. And we're not going to camp on that word, but when Jesus went to the cross, the sin of the world was put upon him. By faith, we go to Christ, and we acknowledge that my sin was on Christ. I receive his righteousness. And in that act and moment of salvation, justification means that God as the judge declares righteous a sinner. Positionally. Okay? And so it's wiped out. So what happens is, what happens to all my sin and what am I going to do with my sin problem? It just doesn't exist anymore. It's been put on Christ and it's been paid in full. And I've been justified. I've been declared righteous. So now I'm in a position where I'm able to reconcile. The sin problem's getting taken care of through all of these works of Christ at the cross. He satisfies His holiness. He satisfies His justice. He gives me his righteousness. I'm justified. Okay? Now the two parties that are separated can become, what's our word today? Reconciled. Reconciled. For if when we were God's enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? He's going to continue to accomplish his purposes in you as you live for him and throughout our lives. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ's participation is, first of all, referenced in this passage as a work of justification. That is, we get his righteousness put over on our account. We put our sin over on his account so God can declare us as though we were never a sinner. And Jesus takes it. It's a little hard to understand, but it's an incredible truth. There's a couple other key passages on reconciliation, and I want you to turn with me to the 2 Corinthians 5 passage. 2 Corinthians 5, and let's look at another little part of Christ's participation. This is Christ's participation. And we'll begin with verse 16. Verse 17 is good enough. Verse 17. Therefore, and we know this verse, we memorized it a few weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 5, start with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who, here's our word, reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul was doing with Onesimus and Philemon. He was carrying out a ministry of reconciliation. That God, verse 19, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That's justification. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of, here's our word again, reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. 
as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, Paul says, here's our word again, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, here's the participation of Christ. How does it work? How does reconciliation work? Be reconciled, it's a command. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to teach you one more little theological word. You ready? It's called imputation. Imputation. Like you imp, imputation. I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. Imputation. Here's what it means. It's verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What did he just say? He said that when Jesus, born of Mary, coming to save his people from their sins, did it by going, being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, and on the cross, the sins of the world were put on him. That's imputed. Transferred over. Imputed. But not only was our sin given to Christ, but the opportunity then is for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us who believe. That's an imputed righteousness. See, this is a penal substitution. This is a, this is a God who provided His Son to pay the penalty, that's the penal, to be it in our place, that's the substitution, so that our sin could be put on Him so that His righteousness could be put on us, so that two parties running away from each other, alienated by the demonstration of His love through the participation of Christ, the sinner could stop running and he could turn and he could face a holy God who's been coming at him and the two parties that were once at war are now, say the word, reconciled. You see why Jesus came? He came so that our sin could be put on him and his righteousness could be imputed to us so that God could declare us justified as though we had never sinned, no record anywhere that we had sinned, so that we could turn around and stop from our shame of sin and turn back to our loving Heavenly Father and receive this salvation so rich and so free. That is reconciliation. You got it? Three keys you have to understand. Man's alienation, God's demonstration, Christ's participation, now a final illustration. In 1962, a missionary, a young missionary couple, married couple named Don and Carol Richardson, got on a ship and went down into the South Pacific to an island, some may know it as Irinjaya. It's the east side of Papua and New Guinea. It's uh, in that island of New Guinea. In 1962, uh, that island, by the way, became much more well-known during World War II and all the battles and things that went on and aviators flying over and men on the beaches and so forth. And these islands of the South Pacific, our sailors and our soldiers became aware of people groups that were living there and post-World War II, partly because of the GI scholarship and men going to Bible college and particularly out of Moody Bible Institute, a great missionary movement started right after World War II. That's when Jim Elliott and Nate Satan, those guys, went out into Ecuador, South America. Well, this is a different missionary couple, Don and Carol Richardson. Don and Carol Richardson went to, at this time it was called the uh, Dutch West Indies, the D Dutch New Guinea, 
And there they connected with a tribal people group called the Sawi people. S-A-W-I. Sawi people. Don and Carol were young missionaries. She was a nurse. He had tools. They had to figure out the language. It was an incredibly complicated language. There were 19 different tenses of the verb, of a, for ver, uh, in verb form. And he had to figure out and write down their language. They began to learn about these people. They built a house among the Sawi people. They find out, found out that these people were incredibly complex in their sinfulness. The Sawi people lived in a system whereby your greatest honor, and they had a word for it that meant, it meant in English to fatten up the pig before slaughter. To fatten up the pig before slaughter. They had a word that meant, I can build a relationship with someone. Sometimes he's my enemy. Sometimes I might just want his wife, whatever. And I will build this friendship so that he trusts me, so that when he trusts me, I will kill him. And that was the esteem of highest honor in the Sawi people group, in the Sawi culture. The highest esteem you could get is when you lured in your friend or enemy for some reason and you built a relationship that was personal and strong and trusting so that then when he turned his back, you could cut his throat. It was incredible. Because Don and Carol were there, they and had medicine and had metal tools... Two other tribes came near. Usually these tribes stayed away from each other because they killed each other all the time. They were a primitive, primitive cave-like people almost, naked savages. They had no word in their language for God. They worshipped a form of spiritism. They worshipped their dead ancestors and they lived in intense fear of the dark. When Don Richardson was trying to communicate and he finally figured out their language enough and began to teach the Word of God to them, he became very frustrated that when he began to tell them about Jesus and how much God loved them, that they didn't like God because He was a God of love. They didn't like that. And when he told the story of Judas betraying Jesus, they all chapped, clapped, and cheered, and they loved Judas. He's great. He got him. He kissed him on the cheek, and then they got him, and they killed him. That was their man. That was the highest honor of any warrior. And Don's, he's incredibly frustrated. And then because of the medicine and the metal tools and, and Carol's work with the sick, the other two tribes had stayed near. Plus, it was very prestigious for the Sawi, for, the, for this white man to be in their tribe. And he was prestigious. And so they loved them being there. But the other tribes wanted some too. And then with the nearness of the two other tribes, these three tribes kept killing each other. And at night, Don and Carol would lay in their hut and they would hear them screaming and killing each other. And so finally, one day, Don went to the head of the tribe of the Sawi people, and he said, it's it, it's over. What do you mean? He said, I'm leaving, it's it. You're killing each other, it's not good. And he begged him not to, come, not to leave. So we need your medicine, we love your tools, we want you to be here. Very prestigious. He said, you don't pay attention to what I'm saying, you just kill each other, it's over, I'm out of here. And then what transpired was something that Don never expected. They called a truce between the tribes, and the tribal heads gathered, and they lined up and they faced each other. And then with the wailing of their wives, the chiefs exchanged babies with one another. And they gave away a baby to the tribe that they had been warring with. You see, they had a, cult, they had a tradition and they had, a, they had a, a, a system that Don had never seen before, had never heard of before. And it was that the only way that peace could come with another tribe is that if you took a baby from 
the chief of this tribe and gave that baby to the other tribe, he would permanently and all of his life live as a peace child in that tribe. And as long as that baby was alive, there would never be any war. It would be dishonorable to have war between those two people groups. And it would be a disgrace if anybody from any of the other groups ever killed the peace child. Well, the lights clicked on in Don's mind and he sat them down. And he began to explain from a whole new direction, not about their hero Judas, but about the fact that God loved him so much and that he was alienated from these people and they had been at war with one another and that God came, the king came, and he took his son. He took his son and he presented him to the people as a peace child. And the great thing about this peace child is he could never die. It was a permanent structure, relationship, restoring the two warring parties. And so when you see Jesus this Christmas, and when you sing the hymns of Christmas, and you think, why did he come? He didn't come so that we could eat a lot of food and open a lot of presents. He came so that we who were alienated and running far and fast from God could turn and come back and be, what's our word? Say it with me. Reconciled. Two separated parties could come together and be reconciled. What did Jesus do? He justified us. He imputed his righteousness to us so that a holy God could look at us. Are you thankful for the peace child in the manger? Amen. Let's pray. We'll close in just a second, but before I do, I want to call upon you to examine your heart today and examine whether or not you understand your salvation, whether you're saved. Do you know today that your sin separates you from a holy God? And do you know that Jesus came to save His people from their sin? He's the peace child. He came to stop the warring. He came to appease the wrath of the kings. To establish a relationship that previously could not take place. My friend, do you know this Christ today? Do you believe in Him as your peace child? Do you know that your sin is forgiven? through Christ, carried to the cross, even when we were feeble and powerless. He did it out of His love. You see, the Bible clearly says that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. It just uses the word believe, that whosoever believeth in Him. Now, this belief is a faith belief. It's a belief that is established that this is upon what I stand. This conviction. I was a sinner. I needed a peace child so that peace could be made between me and God. Will you believe today? Will you look to the cross? Will you look to the Savior? Will you look to the baby in a manger and believe and become a new creation in Christ? I hope you will. Father, accomplish your purposes in us. Draw people to yourself this morning. Open the eyes of their understanding that they might be saved through this peace child. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.